Greetings. Welcome to Splinters. I'm Gary Rogowski. Thanks for joining me this week. I decided to just walk into this chat as if we were standing around my bench. And we started to talk about tools. And the subject of hand planes came up. And I am a proponent of them. Now, I don't use hand planes for surfacing my material, uh, taking rough lumber and turning them into four square boards. That's too much work. I use machinery for that. That was what our milling lumber lecture was about uh, on July 1st. No, I use my hand planes for a variety of smoothing jobs of the tools, of the cutting tools that I use. Boy, I go to them a lot. Speaking of which, let me just say here that we've got a lecture coming up July 22nd on hand planes. It's called Hand Planes, Best at the Bench. These are the five that I use. Let me also point out that these aren't the only five I own. I own a lot more, but these are the five I think you should have at the bench. And I'll talk about them in detail and, and show you the things that make them unique and important and special to me. Anyway, that will be on Zoom, a webinar on Zoom, so you'll be able to answer. answer. You'll be able to ask questions. I'll answer the questions. Just hang on there. I'll answer the questions. You can ask them. We had a great time, our first online lecture with Milling Lumber. So I hope you'll join us July 22nd. Check out the website, northwestwoodworking.com, for more details. And if you can't make it, it's 5 o'clock on July 22nd, Pacific Coast time. If you can't make that time, we'll also have it recorded and posted later on Vimeo for uh, rental. So check that out. Back to our tool discussion and using hand planes. I used to use them almost grudgingly, but I, I understood that there was some, some value there. And, and now, some years later, I use them with purpose and conviction. That's the better way of putting it, with conviction that they are time savers. They are time savers in my shop. And so if you would say to me, well, why use hand planes? Here is my response. Hand planes are... Oh, centuries old. People have been using them for a long time. Basically, it's a chisel held in a body, moved along a piece of wood, pushed in the European style, pulled in the Japanese style. These tools smooth wood. They can shape wood. They can do joinery. There's all sorts of things they can do. They can work on edges. They can work on faces. They can flatten the tabletop. They can carve a tabletop. So their use as smoothing and shaping tools is almost infinite. Their ability, I think, however, to do really precise work, to, to take a shaving that's two thousandths of an inch thick, which is heavy, I grant you, it's a heavy shaving. I tell my students, um, pull out a dollar bill. That's four thousandths of an inch thick. You need a shaving half that thickness to be happy. And to be happy on many levels, that is, easier to make the cut and push it through the work, easier on the blade edge so it holds up a little bit better, and easier on your shoulders and, and legs, particularly on a taller bench, easier on your shoulders. So taking small cuts is simpler by far. And this ability to be precise in, in your removal of material is so much better than sanding a piece flat or trying to sand it flat, as, as people often often do. You say to yourself, well, I'll just sand that flat. And then it's not really flat. It's kind of rounded at the edges. 
Uh, I know I, I've talked with people who use sandpaper for sharpening purposes, but sandpaper has thickness and tends to mold itself to the shape that it's sanding. So there are limitations to how flat you can get your work by sanding. Rasps and files and floats are another option. They require some real discipline to keep things good and flat, and they leave a mark behind. There's no question about it. Those are fairly aggressive tools. The problem with files and rasps is that the handle ends up getting in the way. So there are some limitations to these other options, and a hand plane can do the job quickly and with great results. I mean, when you think about it, how many times have you put finish on a piece just to notice those sanding scratches that you missed taking out? And with the hand plane, I use them for my preliminary removal of my milling marks. So all the tools that you use, if you use machinery at all, will leave a mark behind. There will be a series of circular cuts left by the joiner or the planer. And while you'll allow those in your trim work around your house and just say, oh, that's just a part of the deal. In fact, I just looked at my dad's old machinist tool chest. It's right under my my own tool cabinet. And I noticed the milling marks left in the, in the oak of that thing. Yeah, you know, in production, you don't have time to, to remove those things. But if you're doing quality work, taking the milling marks out is an issue. It's an important one. And the hand plane set for a nice fine shaving, understanding grain direction, understanding the best approach with your hand plane and which one to, to grab for, eliminates steps one and two of my sanding. I used to sand everything. I mean, everything. Start with 80 grit, palm grip, Rockwell sander, you know, use that for half an hour and just walk around the shop buzzing for the next half hour. It's hard work, loud, noisy, dusty, and the results are okay. They're mediocre. Nowadays, the, you know, we have the random orbit sanders, and they can do a great job, but there's still that risk of leaving behind sanding marks, and oftentimes you don't see them until after the fact when you get a coat of finish on. I tell this story in my book in Handmade about uh, uh, having a tabletop, fairly large coffee table, two foot by three foot, and taking it to my friend's place to uh, run it through his drum sander. Just, you know, a quick drum sanding, mahogany, should be easy. And after that, I scraped it and sanded it, and everything seemed fine. And I put a coat of finish on it the first day, it's fine. Put a coat of finish on it the second day. And, and normally my, my method is, is to put a coat of finish on the bottom of a top piece, on the underside of a, of a tabletop, and go about my business after putting that coat of finish on first thing in the morning. And then at the end of the day, flip it over. Bottom should be dry by then. Flip it over and put a coat on the top and walk out the door. And I did that. And as I was headed out the door, I looked back. You know, just sort of a romantic, God, look at my life. Isn't this great? Being a woodworker and nice piece I'm working on and end of a good day and looking at the piece. And by God, there's a, there's a, a sanding mark all the way across the tabletop. I couldn't believe it. It was two feet wide. It was sanding snipe. And you couldn't feel it by hand. I'd run my hand over it a dozen times. Couldn't feel it. But in the light, bouncing off the north windows, that northern light, and a little bit of sheen from my finish, and boy, it just popped.
popped right into my eyeballs. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I had to scrape the whole top down, sand the whole top down. Anyway, those kinds of things can occur with even the best machines. And I, I can hear your argument. Well, what about hand planes? You know, you got to read grain, and the grain can be squirrely and swirly and cause problems, and I agree with you. It can. But if you can sharpen your hand plane and learn to use them, it will save you time, particularly when you're doing assembly work and you, you want to have everything shaped and sanded before you glue up. That's my approach. Some people glue everything up and then shape and sand it. My approach is because I have so many offset surfaces, very few flush surfaces. My approach is go ahead, get everything cleaned up before I glue it up. So that means the joint faces need to be cleaned up, the faces of the rails, the legs, everything's cleaned up, the edges are done. Basically, everything's done. And sanding over a joint can be, that's risky business. You can run the risk of rounding things over and then your shoulders don't fit sweetly. So I really prefer to take a hand plane set for a really light cut to make a cleanup pass and get, get rid of the milling marks. Then I'll hit it with a little 220 or 320 grit. Depends on how well my hand plane was working and how sharp it was. And that's it. I'm done. There's a little bit of hand sanding and I'm done. So instead of 80 grit and 100 grit or 120 and then maybe some 180 or 150, you know, you got a couple of sanding steps in there, maybe three before I hit my 220. These days I take my hand plane make my smoothing pass, take some 220, and move on. But that's just normal shaping and sanding. The other jobs that planes can do are, ugh, the list goes on. I prefer to tune my joints now with a shoulder plane. That kind of accuracy really can really help. I remember talking to a guy who used to work for a uh, production shop here in town, and he said, every time I pick up a hand tool, I'm losing money. Well, that's one approach. That is one approach to building. And it's one approach to being a woodworker. It's not the the choice that I make. And so this coming lecture, I'm going to talk about the uh, advantages of these certain tools. You know, we always make these choices. There are all these decisions we make when we decide to go to work. What kind of job are we going to go to? What kind of atmosphere are we going to work in? What's the pressure on us to deliver the, the goods? And I have to admit, I've decided to uh, err on the side of keeping my, what's, what is it? My sense of, uh, I don't know, confidence, self-worth, um, craftsmanship at the forefront and let profit go by the wayside. Bad move. Clearly a bad move these days. But it makes, you know, work at the end of the day seem like it was worthwhile when I've done my, my best efforts. Hand planes for me are a decision, a choice. Now that I know how to tune them and use them and read grain, they're a choice that does save me time. And so I, I'm arguing that they have a place in every shop, not just a... Uh, traditionalist shop, not just a hand tool shop, but in every shop, because they can do things that other tools cannot. They can dial things in in a way that other tools cannot. And that does something 
that does something for the maker as well as the piece itself, as well as the product. And the hand of the maker on a piece um, infuses it, I think, with a certain glimmer of hope that we were trying to do things on this earth that matter. I don't know. I'm babbling on here. I do find that the hand planes that I use at the bench make a difference in my world and in my work. So I urge you to try them out. There are different approaches. We're going to talk about it in the, in the lecture coming up. But in brief, there are different approaches to hand planes. And if you're here in the States, we are fond now of mass in the body of a tool. And that's great. So many people say, don't buy a number four, buy a four and a half. Don't buy a number five, buy a five and a half. More mass. And I say, use one all day, and then talk to me how you like that mass. <laughs> I, you know, I've used hand planes a long time. And I have learned some stuff about the blade and stiffening the blade and the chip breaker that I think argues for a different approach. Think about the European approach. Wooden-bodied hand planes. British hand planes were, were wooden-bodied. Those coffin-style hand planes were wooden-bodied. Sometimes without a chip breaker. How could they even work? Same with Japanese tools. Those are wood-bodied hand planes. How can they work with no mass? They don't weigh anything. The heaviest thing about them is the iron. How does that work? Something must be working here. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, point of view, an interesting philosophy. And uh, you can come down on different sides of this. It's just, I guess, it's like knife making. I talked to a student once. I was teaching at Peters Valley Craft Center. This was some years ago, but it's a, it's a strange place. Uh, lovely in its, in its own way, but the main campus is in one spot, and blacksmithing is there, and clay is there, and, and then a mile and a half away down this country road, and, uh, you know, amidst all sorts of wildlife, I saw more, more wildlife out there in many forests, uh, is the wood shop and I think the fiber studio, way out in the boonies. And way far away. It's just where the property and the buildings on the property worked out to be. And so there we were, way out there. And one day I was walking back to the main campus for lunch. And I happened to be walking with a gentleman who was uh, taking a fibers class. Maybe it was jewelry up there. I don't remember. Anyway... We got on the discussion of tool steel for some reason, as, you, as anyone would when walking down a country lane. But we were talking about tool steel, and he regaled me with this conversation about the three different types of tool steel that have existed throughout history. And one was Damascus steel, and one was Japanese steel, and I think the other was a Swedish steel. Um, and there were different methods for, for their development. They came from different cultures, and the steel had different properties. And that was fascinating, how, how a culture can influence tooling. I had a conversation once with Ron Hock of Hock Tools about the idea of what influenced tool making the most. Was it warfare or peace? Because swords were a big deal for many of the steel makers for such a long time. The original wedge, perhaps. And that... Technology was a way of improving the tools that workers use to create the things for living, for peace. Interesting stuff. 
Anyway, I think there are different approaches to this hand plane work. It's fun to try some, some different ideas out. In any event, I've gone on long enough. I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you very much for listening. I would like to remind you that we have our online lecture July 22nd, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific Coast time. Please join us. It will be a pleasure to talk about my five best hand planes at the bench and show you what they do and how I use them, how I tune them. You know, do a little bit of work, show you how things go. Um, anyway, should be fun. Thanks very much for listening. This has been Gary Rogowski for Splinters. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.